0: by else, i turn to Ezra, chapter 1. It's okay to use the table of contents. No shame, that's not a book a lot of us read very often. So I'm going to give you a good bit of background just to get us up to speed. Not a period of biblical history that many of us know much about. So, big picture, the kingdom of Israel is made up of 12 tribes. And under Saul, first king, David, second king, Solomon, the third king all of those 12 tribes were united. They're called the nation of Israel. After Solomon, the the kingdom divided. So you had the 10 tribes in the north. You can see them listed there. They, They became known as Israel, which is confusing. Or Ephraim was another name that they were known as. The capital was Samaria. And they only had wicked kings. They started with a wicked king and they never got a good one. And so in 722, God sent the Assyrians, who were the regional superpower of the day, against that northern kingdom, against the kingdom of Israel, and uh, Assyria routed the Israelites and, and deported them. They exiled a, a large portion of the population. So that northern area is now, uh, it's, it, there's not very many Jews left there. They've been dispersed across the Assyrian empire. The southern kingdom is called Judah. It's made up of Judah and Simeon. Capital is Jerusalem. And they have good kings and not-so-good kings. They'll have some not-so-good kings, and then a good king will come on the scene, and he'll reform uh, the nation, and then they'll slide back into uh, wickedness and rebellion. But ultimately, wickedness wins, and God sends the Babylonians against the southern kingdom. So this begins in 605 B.C., the Babylonians have overthrown the Assyrians, and so now the Babylonians are the biggest kid on the block. They're the regional superpower of the day, and they come against uh, Jerusalem, or Judah over the course of about 20 years, from 605 to 586. They exile about 10,000 uh, uh, citizens of, of Judah. It's, it's not like the Assyrians who kind of exiled everybody. The Babylonians just kind of take the top off of society. They take the leaders, they take. The artisans, they take the craftspeople, they take the merchants, they take the wealthy, and they deport all of them, and they leave the poor and the poorest of the poor to farm the land, to to cultivate the land, so they can pay tribute back to Babylon. So that begins in 605, and then 586, Jerusalem is overrun. The walls around Jerusalem are destroyed. The temple is destroyed. The best articles of the temple, everything worth anything, is taken by the Babylonians back uh, to, their, uh, to their capital. And the other fortified cities around in Judah are destroyed as well. So it's complete devastation. So by 586 B.C., the promised land is not the promised land anymore. Jerusalem has been destroyed. The temple has been destroyed. And many of the Jews have been dispersed across the broader Babylonian empire. Devastating. It's hard to overstate. Maybe it's impossible to overstate how devastating that experience would have been for a Jew. Some of the most important promises God made to them, some of the the, the terms of their covenant, the terms of their relationship. You're going to have this promised land that goes all the way back to Abraham. This is the land I'm going to give you. Well, they've been exiled from it. I'm going to place my name in Jerusalem. This is a capital city. It's been overrun. I'm going to dwell in this temple. It's been destroyed. I'm always going to have a son of David on the throne. Not anymore. Now they're under foreign occupation. They don't have anybody on the throne. Devastating time if you're a Jew. But God didn't leave the Jews without, uh, without a word. He spoke to them through the prophets, primarily through Jeremiah. And Jeremiah helped give some perspective to what was going on. The Jews are sitting there thinking, God, is God not faithful? Does he not keep his promises? Is God weak? Are the, the gods of these other nations stronger than the God of our nation? And Jeremiah says, hold on. God didn't break any promise with you. This is actually what he said he would do. Go all the way back to Deuteronomy 32, way back with Moses before we entered the promised land. God said through Moses that if we were rebellious, he'd kick us out of the land. He's just, he's actually holding up his end of the bargain. What you see is his faithlessness is actually an expression of his faithfulness. He's holding up his end of the covenant. He said this is what would happen if we were rebellious and we have been rebellious. And then there were some people who were saying, hey, it's only going to be a short time. Remember way back in March when we thought COVID would last for two weeks? We figured we'd go back to school after spring break. That's how these guys were. There were false prophets, and they were saying, hey, it's only going to be, it's temporary. It's short term. And Jeremiah says, hold on, not true. Just settle in here. You need to settle into life in Babylon. You need to get your sons married, get your daughters married, build houses, plant gardens. You're going to be here for a while. Seek the prosperity of this city. As it prospers, you're going to prosper too. You're going to be here for a while. But then he also says, but you're not going to be here forever. It's going to last 70 years. That's how long this time out is going to last. That's how long your judgment, your punishment from God is going to last. So Jeremiah says all those things. And then in 540, 539, 538 B.C., things begin to change. There's a new biggest kid on the block, the Medio persian Empire. It's led by a guy named Cyrus. And they come on the scene and they overthrow the Babylonians in 539. In the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah, they record what happens in the first hundred years of that Medo-Persian Empire. Medo-Persian Empire. Sorry, I said that wrong. And how, that, uh, how Israel fares under the reign of the first several kings. So the, Ezra and Nehemiah are like historical books. And we're also going to look at Haggai and Zechariah who are two prophets who prophesied, who ministered during that same time. That's that first 100 years of of this, we'll just call it the Persian Empire, beginning with Cyrus, where you've got all of the Israelites at this point, most of them have been displaced. They've been exiled. Jerusalem is in shambles. The temple is in shambles. They've got no king on the throne. And then this new guy, Cyrus, comes on the scene. Ezra and Nehemiah, tell us what happens, when that happens. So we're going to read chapter 1 and chapter 2. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm, and also to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. And he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who's in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. And in any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem." Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. All their neighbors assisted them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock and with valuable gifts, in addition to all the freewill offerings. Moreover, King Cyrus brought out the the articles belonging to the temple of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and had placed in the temple of his God. Cyrus, the king of Persia, had them brought by Mithridath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Shezbazar, the prince of Judah? This was the inventory gold dishes 30, silver dishes 1,000, silver pans 29, gold bowls 30, matching silver bowls 410, and other articles 1,000. In all, there were 5,400 articles of gold and silver. Shezbazar brought all these along with the exiles when they came up from Babylon to Jerusalem. Now, these are the people of the province who came up from the captivity of the exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had taken captive to Babylon. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to their own town, in the company of Zerubbabel, Joshua, and then I'm not going to read all these names. These are the list of the men of the people of Israel. I'm not going to read all those. These are the priests. These are the Levites, musicians, gatekeepers of the temple, temple servants, descendants of the servants of Solomon. Those were other temple workers. And they, uh, they all come up. Now I'm going to pick up in verse uh, 61. From among the priests, there's this list of guys. These searched for their family records, but they could not find them. And so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. The governor ordered them not to eat any of the most sacred food until there was a priest ministering with the Urim and Thummim. The whole company numbered 42,360. So that's the number of people who came back. Besides, there 7,337 male and female slaves. They also had 200 male and female singers, 736 horses, 245 mules, 435 camels, and 6,720 donkeys. When they arrived at the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, some of the heads of the families gave freewill offerings toward the rebuilding of the house of God on its site. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury for this work 61,000 derricks of gold, 5,000 miners of silver, and 100 priestly garments. The priests, the Levites, the musicians, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants settled in their own towns along with some of the other people, and the rest of the Israelites settled in their towns. So the action there is pretty straightforward. Cyrus issues a proclamation, and it's permission. It's not a command. It's permission. Any Jews that are living in his territory, they can go back to Jerusalem, and they can rebuild the temple. And Cyrus says, I'm not going to send you back empty-handed. He sends them back with at least some of the articles that Nebuchadnezzar had taken when he destroyed the temple. We don't know if that was everything or not, but it was at least some of them. And he also says, any Jews that choose to stay, you guys need to send some, going, give some going-away presents to your brothers and sisters who are returning to Jerusalem. Send them on their way. They're going to have to start from scratch when they get back to Jerusalem and Judah, so give them some money. So they can get started. And we see that's what happens. It's not just the Jews that give them money. It's their Gentile neighbors as well. And 42,360 people return. And some of you who are mathletes probably already looked and said those numbers don't add up. If you do the list of the men who returned, it's not 42,360. It's 29,818. So what's the difference? We don't know. My best guess is in the list, it's just men. People knew how to add back then, so they didn't, he didn't mess up by 12,000 people. The list is men, and the 42,360 include women and children. We'll see towards the end, a problem that both Ezra and Nehemiah have with the returnees is over time, the men are marrying foreign women. So I think you have more men going back than women, and again, that makes sense. You can imagine here, if... if, if if we had an opportunity to move or or maybe we we have permission and it was to uproot and move hundreds of miles away and start from scratch, who are the people most likely to do that? Or is it the guys maybe who are right out of college and they don't really have any strings and they don't really, they, they hadn't started their family yet. There's nothing really keeping them here. Is it the people who are my age who do have roots here and have kids in high school who don't want to move and maybe you're thinking I'm too old to start over. Who's going to go? So it kind of makes sense to me that you probably have more young and single men going back than anything else. You're going to have a lot of people associated with the temple, priests and Levites and temple workers, because we're going to build the temple back. So that's calling and job for these people who haven't really had jobs for a long time. There hasn't been a temple. And now they're going to have an opportunity to do that. And again, it makes sense to me that probably the majority of the people that went back were youngish, single guys. And again, as we get later in Ezra and Nehemiah, we'll see that part of the problem is there didn't seem to be maybe enough Jewish women for them to marry. And they started marrying foreign women. I could be wrong. I don't, but that there, there is discrepancy there. And that's a, to me, that's a pretty good explanation for it. So these guys go back and we'll see as we read through Ezra and Nehemiah what they do. There's a strong emphasis on purity. You saw that at the end. We don't want any priests who can't prove their lineage. That's how that whole thing, they couldn't prove who their grandparents and great-grandparents and great-great-grandparents were. And to be a priest, you have to be from certain families. And so we'll just wait until the the Urim and the Thummim, we don't know what that is. It was some way that they used to discern God's will, maybe like casting lots. So let's just wait until we get a priest and that guy can figure out if you guys need to be serving as priests or not. And you'll see that's another theme that runs through Ezra and Nehemiah is the purity of the people to show, hey, there's continuity. We're, on this side of the exile, we're the same guys from before. We're, we're still God's people, even though we've had this 70-year timeout. So why Ezra and Nehemiah and why now? Uh, two, two reasons. Corporately, I think it's good accountability for us. One of my concerns when we moved was there might be this subconscious sense of, hey, we've actually accomplished something. We've done something and we can see it and we can sit in it and we can uh, drive by it. And so we kind of arrived. And so we're, I'm just going to show up for church a couple times a month, maybe bring a friend every now and again and kind of go on about my life. Ezra and Nehemiah remind us of the things that are most important. And so as we go through the books, I think uh, you'll see that. It reminds us of vision and mission and values and the things that are most important to us, kind of regardless of location. And the second thing is I feel a a personal uh, kinship to the returnees. The returnees, it's kind of an in, there's an in-betweenness about their life. I made that word up. There's an in-betweenness about their life. Remember those four promises, land and Jerusalem and temple and son of David well, on the throne. Well, some of those have been uh, are, are kind of reinstated. Hey, we're back in the land. We're rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem. We're rebuilding the temple of Jerusalem. God is working. He's restoring us. But they're still under the leadership of a pagan king, Cyrus. And that will extend for centuries. There's an there's an there's an in between. As God is working, but He hasn't. It, it, we're not fully restored yet, and that's where we live. Also, we know God is establishing His kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. We can sing. There's going to be a breakthrough when there are times where we see God working in our lives and our families and our schools and our places of business and our city and in our world. And we can, get it, we can get excited. We can listen to Josh and Mandy and we can all think back just several years ago when they had a church. I went to church there once and they had literally two people were in the service. And, and now their room is getting really close to full. And we, we can celebrate that, the way God is working and then we also all know our world has fallen. And the enemy still, sti- still continues to steal and kill and destroy. And people continue to get sick and die. And people wicked people continue to prosper. And righteous people continue to kind of get plowed under. And there's an in-betweenness to our life. And I think, again, we can learn something from these 42,360 returnees. And what it looks like to live in between. So uh, one thing as we close today, we're going to probably be done about 10.05, 15 more minutes. We'll stretch a little bit. Sorry about that. The the phrase that jumped out at me, it it occurs twice. God moved, or your Bible may say, God stirred the heart of fill in the blank. We expect it in verse 5. God moved the heart of the Jews to return. And we're like, of course he did. Those are his people. Of course he stirred their hearts. And those of you who've been following Jesus for any length of time, you probably have a, an experience, at least one, where you can say, and God stirred my heart. And you can tell the story. And you may not use that exact language. You may say, God led me, or God spoke to me, or God told me. Or, but but that's, it, it's the same reality. God initiated some action, and you responded. God stirred your heart. And we expect that in verse 5. Of course, that's what he does with his people. Much more unexpected in verse 1. God stirred the heart of Cyrus. Cyrus is a pagan king. Don't let the language fool you when he talks about the Lord God. That doesn't mean that he's following our God at all. That just means he acknowledges there's a God in this little city, Jerusalem, and I want to keep him happy. And so when I'm talking about him and his people, I'm going to use the language that they use. There's no indication that he was submitted or surrendered to God at all. So don't hear that. And yet we see God stirring his heart. And we kind of think, well, what is that? He's not one of his people. And we see that same phrase several times in the Old Testament. God stirred the heart, same phrase of the Assyrians, to attack the northern kingdom that we talked about earlier. God stirred the heart of the Babylonians, same phrase, to attack Judah, the southern kingdom that we talked about earlier. God stirred the hearts of the Persians to attack the Babylonians. So we see God stirring the hearts of individuals and empires that aren't his. What's going on? All of that's an expression of God's sovereignty. That's a fancy word. God's sovereignty is his ability to accomplish his will. You have a to-do list. God's sovereignty means everything on his to-do list gets checked. There's nothing undone. Everything God intends to do, God does. That is what it means for God to be sovereign. Remember in in, uh, verse 1, it says all of this stuff is happening to fulfill the word of the Lord through Jeremiah. Jeremiah gave several words a hundred plus years before any of this happened. He said, I'm going to stir the Medes. Remember, it's the, it's the Mede-Persian Empire. They're working, they're partner-ish. They're working together, in a sense. Cyrus is the leader of that. I'm going to judge Babylon. I called Babylon to punish my people, but they took it too far. And so I'm going to punish them. And that's what happens. The Persians overthrow the Babylonians. In 70 years, you guys are going to come back. The first exiles, first wave of exiles, were taken in 605 BC. That's in Daniel 1. He was a part of that group Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You've heard those names. They were part of that original group that was exiled from Judah and wound up in Nebuchadnezzar's world. And now it's 67 years later in 538. So you round up to 70. So round number for prophetic purposes. We have the exiles beginning to return home. All of that's done to fulfill the word of the Lord. That's God's sovereignty in action. I don't want to drown in a pool that most of you aren't interested in even swimming in. So let me just give you my take on sovereignty. There's other understandings, and some of you in this room have other understandings. I have the microphone, so I'm going to tell you mine. Relational sovereignty. That's where I come from. I look at God's, I say God is sovereign over his sovereignty. And so he is able to, so he has determined how he is going to check the boxes on his to do list. And the two primary things that I see one is that God chooses to be influenced by his people. He didn't have to be, but he's chosen in his sovereignty to be influenced by his people. And that happens primarily through prayer. Why do you pray? But because God responds to your prayers. If you read through the Bible, you see this happening repeatedly. God responds to the prayers of his people. He's accomplishing his purposes, and he's allowing his people to influence him. Second thing I would see about this relational sovereignty, God is influenced by his people primarily through prayer. And second, God primarily accomplishes his will through his people. Occasionally, he works through, through someone like Osiris. Occasionally, he works independent of people. But almost the majority of the time, God chooses to check the boxes on his to-do list through his people. God is sovereign. He is accomplishing his purposes. I don't see him as doing that independent of people. God leads. God persuades. God convicts. God woos. I don't see God overriding the will of people, forcing them to do something that they would not do otherwise. There's a whole nother view of sovereignty, and if you're interested in that, I can point you in the direction of people who love God and love the Bible who can explain that to you. Where I come from, again, is this relational view where God, in his sovereignty, has chosen to be influenced by people, and i chosen to cooperate with people or to work through people. How does, why does any of this matter on Monday when you go to work or when you go to school? One, it gives me hope. When I think about God using Cyrus, who is a pagan king, and I look around at our nation and at our world, it gives me hope. God works through people even if they're not His. I don't know if you all remember, in 2016, there was a little buzz in the church that Donald Trump was a Cyrus, someone who was not following Jesus, but was going to be used by God. I don't know if anybody still thinks that, but that's what people said. If you look at our two choices in November, neither one of those guys, from what I can tell, are following Jesus wholeheartedly, but God God can work. He can use either of them. He used Cyrus. He used Nebuchadnezzar, one of the most, he was a wicked man. And God was able to use him to accomplish his purposes. It gives me hope when I look at our nation and our world. It gives me hope and I take comfort in the fact that God can use people, even people who are not his. He's wise enough and he's powerful enough to do that. It gives me comfort. It gives me hope. It gives me perspective when I think about God's sovereignty. I don't know, do you tend to see God as one who's actively working or one who only occasionally works? C.S. Lewis in the Screwtape Letters famously says, I'm going to butcher the quote, but he famously says the two things that are not available to God are the, the irresistible and the incontrovertible. He can't use those tools. God can't ravish. He can't pick us up and take us somewhere. He can only woo. He invites us. If God were to appear to us more powerfully than he does, it would overwhelm us. And then faith at that point is not required. And we all know without faith it's impossible to please God. What he's looking for is relationship freely entered into. It gives me perspective. I don't know if you're someone who sees God as always working or rarely working most of what god does you can write off you can explain it another way and one time i was in college uh, we were looking to move into a house our senior year brian tucker i saw him in here he and i were roommates we had eight guys in one house um and one of these guys in particular, our junior year, he and I were in a small group and he was kind of wrestling with his faith, probably actually talking, thinking about moving away, walking away from his faith. And, and he kind of laid this scenario out for us to pray about. He had three or four stipulations for a house. He wanted a room by himself. He needed the rent. This was, this was back in 1996. He needed the rent to be less than $200 a month for his share And he needed it to be, he needed to be able to walk to campus. And there was one other, I can't remember. But at least those three things. There's not a lot of places where you can live by yourself for $200 a month that are close to campus. That's called a tent, is what that is. And we prayed. And it was, I think it was Brian actually who who, uh, reached out. And he had some roommates, and they were moving out. And so there was enough room for six of us to move in with him. You had another roommate. Six of us to move in. This guy got his own room, walkable to campus. It's less than two hundred dollars a month. But because we knew Brian, it didn't count. It didn't count. I didn't get it. It's easy to write off what God does because He often works through pretty normal means. He checked every box on the guy's list. And the guy said, no, it doesn't count. Because we went to high school with Brian. I don't know if you're someone who tends to see God working or tends to see him not. It requires faith. And honestly, you can feel silly at times to choose to see God at work. When I read Ezra 1 and 2, it reminds me he's working. Even through people who are not his. If I'll have eyes to see. Last thing. It reminds me of the need to cooperate with God. Cyrus had to make the decree. His heart was stirred. He still had to make the pronouncement. The Jews, whose hearts were stirred, they still had to pack up and move. And we actually know that most of them chose to stay 42,000 returned. More than that chose to stay, which is heartbreaking. I think about that for me. God is sovereign, and He is at work, and He's going to He's going to check the boxes. But for better or worse, He said, "I'm going to work through you and you to make that happen." That's not pressure; that's invitation. Some of it is your prayer, and some of it is your daily obedience. You may have to pack. You got to pack up and move, like those Jews did. And I think about that. We're going to close with this psalm, Psalm 95. We don't want to harden our hearts. It's so easy for us to do that. Most of us don't harden our hearts intentionally. We don't. But our lives are really loud and our lives are really busy. And loud and busy make it difficult to hear a still small voice, to recognize a thought or a feeling. As God's stirring your heart. When we hear God's stirred hearts, we think it's gonna be undeniable. I'm going to, there's going to, I, I won't have any question that it was God. Let me tell you, I've been doing this for a while. I have yet to experience undeniable, it's always deniable. You can always chalk it up to something else. But eyes of faith say, no, God's always at work. Even through unlikely sources. He's inviting us into what he's doing. Is your heart ready to respond? I want you to close your eyes. I'm going to read Psalm 95. Bo's going to come back up. He's going to lead us in a song of worship. And this is how I want you to respond as I read this psalm. Uh, If you would like prayer, you can come up here and kneel. There are these blue pieces of tape, and so you can kneel in front of one of those blue pieces, and that kind of keeps you a little bit separated. And if you're kneeling here, then that's an indication that you're okay with me or Kim putting our hand on your back. We'll, we'll wear masks, and we won't talk to you, but we will put a hand on your back and pray for you. Uh, if you're not comfortable, then you can kneel. Uh, you can just make your chair an altar if you want to respond in that way. Um, read, this is Psalm 95, and I want you to close your eyes as your eyes are closed. I want you to think about this ask the Lord to speak to you. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. Why? For the Lord is the great king. So this is speaking about the sovereignty of God. The Lord is a great king, the great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. So come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Why? Because he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Listen to that imagery. We're thinking about God as the great king above all gods who holds all the universe in his hand. And then he cares for us as a shepherd cares for his sheep. Today, today, August 9th. If you would only hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massa in the wilderness. That's a reference to a a story in Exodus. The Israelites were wandering and they were thirsty and there was no water. They started griping, there's no water. They weren't trusting the Lord. So in those places where your ancestors tested me and they tried me, that they'd seen what I did. They literally walked across a miracle. They walked across the Red Sea. Again, we think, if I experienced something like that, well, I'd never doubt again. Not true. For 40 years, I was angry with that generation. I said, these are people whose hearts go astray. They've not known my way. So I declared on oath of my anger, they shall never enter my rest. God, I thank you that you've made it possible for every man and woman, every child in this room to enter into your rest because of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And what you're asking from us is the same thing you are asking of the Israelites in the desert. Just trust me. Just trust me. I'm the great king. I'm the God of gods. I hold everything in my hand. And I care for you. Not just like a shepherd cares for sheep, but like a, son, a father cares for a son and a daughter. God, I pray for everyone in this room. I pray our hearts would not become hard through busyness the loudness of our life through neglect through disappointment feelings of inadequacy God I pray that every one of us would recognize your stirring we would recognize your moving of our hearts and we would step out with you so I invite you to do two things one if you hardened your heart, that repent. You hardened it, the Lord will soften it. It's not finished. I want to encourage you to do that. You know yourself. If, if there's something that you've sensed the Lord stirring you, moving you to do, and you've been resistant, that's what it means to harden your heart. Confess that to Him. Repent. Ask Him to soften your heart. For some of you, you're thinking, man, I sure wish God would, I, I'm, I'm here, I'm, I'm ready. God's not speaking. He's not moving. He's not stirring me. You ask him to do that this morning. He used Cyrus. He, he, he used Nebuchadnezzar. In numbers, he used literally a donkey. If he can use a donkey, he can use me. And he can use you. Make yourself available again this morning. So Holy Spirit, would you do that for those of us whose hearts have become hard, either by our own deliberate choices or just by the accidents of life. Would you soften our hearts so we would hear you speaking to us. We would sense you stirring us. And for everyone in the room, in the room I pray for that stirring, that leading, that still small voice. Inviting us into this grand work that you're doing. Very, very few are you going to call to move to Turkey. But every single one you're going to ask to get it to to engage with you in the places where you've planted us. So come and speak, I pray, in Jesus' name.